The federal government is where the money comes from. When a fringe economic theory goes mainstream, you better pay attention. You could take the national debt clock that scares everyone and just rename it the US dollar savings clock. And I think everybody would have a very different kind of reaction. The true story of money is not the story that I've been told. You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Welcome back to Post Growth Australia podcast. We're your co hosts, Michael Bayless. And I'm Mark Allen. And we just heard an excerpt from the trailer for the feature film, new documentary, brand new documentary, Finding the Money, which at time of broadcast will just be starting its Australian tour. This is fantastic news because, as you know, Michael and I are big, big proponents of modern monetary theory, and we think it's such a crucial thing to understand the mechanics of how our economy really works so that we can properly transition to a degrowth or post-growth society. So this is great to see this move has been made and great to see that it's touring Australia, right? And in an example of pure serendipity, the director of Finding the Money, Maren Poitras, is staying with a good colleague of mine, Steve Williams, who is living in the Huon Valley in Tasmania, which is one of the first places in which the Australian tour of the movie will start in Tasmania. Unfortunately, it won't come to Western Australia, where we are, but you can't have it all. We are pretty isolated. And Steve Williams was an author of a book on ecological economics and modern monetary theory, which came out about two years ago and was also interviewed on Post Growth Australia podcasts. So I was just incredibly honoured when he emailed me and said he's got Maren um, staying with him and she'd like to be interviewed on this podcast. Yeah, we're very lucky indeed. And I'm really glad that you got to talk to her because it was a really good interview. The movie is incredible too. It was um, epiphany after epiphany uh, for me. You know, you think you know everything about modern mon- or enough about modern monetary theory, um, but the movie just goes into the origins of money. You know, and I learned one thing in economics, and, and it just turns that over to its head, and so many other things it turns onto its head as well. So we were very fortunate to have a pre-viewing of it, and um, Maren expands into many questions that um, came from the interview, not only with regards to the content, but the uh, challenges in making a feature-length documentary. I mean, you know, I think making a podcast episode is difficult, but, you know, making a full-length documentary is a whole other ballpark altogether. I can imagine, yeah. I mean, I find that just writing an article is stressful enough, so you've got to be very appreciative of people who go to the effort to make documentaries, yeah, especially yeah. when you don't know how it's going to go down with the general public, you know. it's There's always an element of uh, seeing what happens and how it turns out. But I'm very optimistic about this movie and the fact that they're touring Australia is really exciting. And speaking of epiphanies, any of your own? Well, Michael, I was thinking that instead of having the term 
modern monetary theory, we should use the term established monetary reality. <laughs> and why is that, Mark? <laughs> because a lot of people get confused when they hear modern monetary theory. It's actually a way of understanding how economics actually works. But hopefully modern monetary theory will increasingly become a term that people see as a lens to understand the current economic system. I really uh, like the proposal of established monetary reality. I think that's great. And in an episode full of epiphanies, I'm almost thinking of calling the title of this episode a cornucopia of epiphany. That sounds good. I'll have to learn how to spell cornucopia first. <laughs> but in the meantime, uh, let's welcome our very special guest, Maren Poitras, Director of Finding the Money. Hello, Maren. A very warm welcome to PGAP today. Uh, let's start off by telling us how you are today and what got you into MMT and filmmaking. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on. And I guess it was around the same time that I got into both. You know, I had kind of been living off the grid and studied environmental studies and started a bit of a, a homestead and started reading a lot more about these big picture big systemic problems in terms of climate change, the environment, the economy, um, and how they're so often, you know, related. I think people that are interested in environmental issues very quickly get to either obstacles or important fundamentals of the economy come into play. So I started exploring these, these big ideas and at the same time started getting interested in more storytelling. That led me to, to start working in documentary and a few other documentaries and then um, really always kind of with the idea of this project in mind. Um, it, it really actually evolved quite a bit from where I wanted to start was really challenging the growth paradigm, um, degrowth, post-growth, however you want to call it, any of those paradigms. But it, that kind of eventually led me on a circuitous path to money and the money question. And then I found, you know, this kind of underdog group of economists that I call them in, in MMT. And that really kind of grabbed my attention. And it was such a it just seemed like such a natural story with a lot of conflict built in and really interesting, you know, revelations. And so I was just kind of so drawn and riveted by the story that I felt like, you know, it needed to be told and needed to be told in kind of a movie format. Um, and so I endeavored to, to start doing that. Yeah, I felt like that we really just kind of needed to tackle the money piece first or, I need, you know, we needed to understand just the basics of money before then we could understand how we could have, you know, a really successful economy that is organized um, and doesn't need to grow, you know, a successful economy that could be degrowing. Um, and money is really the tool that can that can help us and allow us to, to actually pull it off, uh, I think, and do it. So anyway, I felt like I needed to, to start start here. Yeah, fantastic. And I should have said right at the intro that uh, you are in Australia as we speak. You're um, currently based in Tasmania and Finding the Money will be touring. And I'm very sad. I'm in Western Australia, so I won't have the chance to see the movie in real time. Um, but I did have the immense honour and privilege of watching Finding the Money the other day. So thank you so much. It was an absolutely amazing production and I'm not just saying that to make this interview less awkward I really loved it <laughs> oh. 
Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. I loved everything from the very clever logo. I was so <laughs> impressed by your logo um, through to the production and editing. So, you know, accolades all around. and But also the opportunity to observe uh, Stephanie Kelton as a person mm-hmm. and uh, in the thick of the action. Um, and finally, I also have to mention the rueful amusement with regard to the interviews with the, um, I'm going to use quotation marks here, the government <laughs> economic advisors. There may be a couple of challenges with a couple of high-up individuals <laughs> failing upwards who don't understand how the chain of money flow actually works. Mm, yes, but failing upwards is still the way it happens, still the way it goes. Exactly. Look, how do you reflect on the experience and challenges in making a documentary um, and specifically finding the money? Mm, yeah, well, specifically this one, I could talk all day about the challenges, but um, <laughs> but no, and, and again, I think, you know, and apologies that we're not getting to the Western coast of Australia this time. We, we definitely wanted to squeeze it in, but with Stephanie's got kind of a quick tour, so we're doing a bit of a very quick Southeast tour, I guess, of the highest population areas. But hopefully, you know, we'll get back and hopefully we'll be in wide distribution in Australia at some point. You know, we're still very early on. Um, You guys will be some of the first people, you know, to kind of see the film here in Australia. You know, we're releasing in the US, not until April or May um, in theaters. And so this is just kind of a special tour. And we have MML, the Modern Money Lab, which is a a brand new kind of graduate online graduate program that's based out of Adelaide in partnership with Torrens University. But anyone in the world can take this this online graduate program and get a graduate degree or different levels as they like. You know, what I love about it is it combines ecological economics and MMT and really gives you that degrowth perspective and hopefully gives such a bigger picture. The challenges were, were many from the beginning. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, uh, mostly... <laughs> Mostly finding the money. Almost sounds like you're directing a feature-length film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, and, and it still continues to this day. I am re-editing, trying to re-edit a trailer today um, and get that out. So it's a little tricky. But um, it hasn't ended. It won't end anytime soon, it looks like. But distribution is a whole other job after the last 10 jobs of shooting and editing and producing and fundraising and all of that. So I wouldn't recommend it now as a profession. It sounds like making a movie is not just for Christmas. Now, um, Finding the Money will be touring Australia pretty much as we speak, hopefully at the same time which we launch the episode. So just give us a little bit of an overshoot of what cities it will be screening with, who you'll be working with, and what people can expect at the screenings. And further to that, I, I noticed you're saying that um, you're coming to Australia first, and do you believe MMT has... A good following in Australia compared to elsewhere in the world and certainly Adelaide itself impresses me with both the modern monetary lab and with being the HQ of economic reform Australia for example. Yeah no that's a good question and I don't know I think there clearly is a ton of enthusiasm here and just you know the the amount of volunteers that are helping us organize the screening tour is amazing. So there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm here in Australia. And I can't say I have the same in, in the United States um, in terms of, you know, kind of grassroots volunteer efforts to to do the outreach and coordination for these screenings. And that's really what we need is that kind of grassroots energy and spreading the word and word of mouth for this film because, you know, we don't have millions of dollars to put into marketing. Yeah, there it may well be that there's so much enthusiasm here versus elsewhere, but we're getting a lot of interest in Europe as well. And so we're going there actually right after um, in Greece at a, a film festival. 
and then back to the U.S. after that. So, you know, it's kind of ironic because in the film, or one of the biggest critiques is that it's, it's only like a U.S.-based story or MMT, Modern Money Theory, only applies to the United States. So it is a common critique, and I do actually very much regret not fitting in the film more of a a clear explanation of how MMT applies to many other and basically all other countries which use money. And of course, there's kind of, as we know, there's this um, spectrum of monetary sovereignty. So countries like Australia, the US, the UK, Canada, Japan, Switzerland, these are countries which issue their own currency um, and have debt in their own currencies as we quote unquote debt. And so they're very much just exactly in the same boat as the United States. Uh, and then there's different levels. You have folks in the countries in the Euro system are very different. They've kind of given up their own currencies and they now, you know, they all share a currency, whereas they don't actually, none of those countries actually have political control over the currencies. So it's, it's a very interesting experiment that they've tried to separate, you know, their, their monetary system from their political system or tried to take money, you know, out of the hands of politicians in a lot of ways. And sometimes, you know, I sympathize with that feeling like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to not, you know, not allow these corrupt politicians to, to do all these bad things and spend money on wars and all of that. But I think when it comes down to it, you know, we do have to recognize that money is fundamentally political. Um, you can't really separate it. it. You can't really put it in the sphere of, of the na a natural system or try to take money out of politics and say, you know, here it can just operate naturally on its own, maybe in a, in a balancing free market system or what have you, a self-balancing self system. I think that's the, the kind of idea, the mainstream ideological hope. But not only is it not a hope, but I also think there's something a little more sinister there and, and a little bit more of a class struggle always going on where um, really taking money out of the hands of democracies means um, you're putting it more in the hands of, of the powerful and maybe as we would call maybe the capitalist class um, who benefit from, from labor being a little bit dis empowered and so back to your original question yes there's a lot of enthusiasm in australia and elsewhere and it applies in all of these countries and i think for me especially developing economies are some of the most exciting mmt holds some of the most exciting implications for them of how how they could do things differently they don't need to listen to only the advice of the world bank and the imf and take out only debt in foreign denominated currency simply to employ people within their own borders to do socially useful work um, you know, huge high levels of unemployment, that's just unnecessary. Uh, if you do, if you are able to simply tax and spend in your own currency that you that you are the sole issuer of. Um, so yeah, a lot to talk about in those realms. What you've said has really inspired many feelings that I've had since reading Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myths. And, you know, in some ways, MMT has come to me as an immense relief, because as the film points out, a green revolution can indeed be funded. Money is not the problem, and as, as you've just said as well. Also, it takes away from that sense of my taxpayers' money paying for social services and uh, having to pick who gets yeah. the money, etc. But it's also left me feeling quite angry and feeling gaslighted uh, by many <laughs> generations of, of uh, the government discourse through Kelton's work and through conversations with MMT advocates on PGAP, I get a sense that the prevailing thought is that it's because politicians and economists don't yet get it. Um, now, this might be the cynic in me, but I get a sense we might be on the wavelength, but I can't help but 
see the wall over our eyes being very convenient for both the spread of neoliberalism and great for justifying the erosion of equality and democracy for the masses through the divide and conquer games that comes from the the belief, for example, that the unemployed are taking advantage of my taxpayers' money. Uh, where, where do you see it? Mm. Yes, yes. No, this is great, great insights. And I think um, <laughs> that was one of my, you know, leading questions Yeah, making the film was, you know, what is going on here? Like, could it really be that these mainstream economists don't even, you know, haven't asked the basic questions like where does money come from? What is money? What is the national debt? As far as I can tell, and I did ask, you know, kind of every interviewer this, every interview partner this question was, number one, you know, at some level, do you think this is a bit of a conspiracy or more of a misunderstanding and almost everyone said it's a, it's a bit of both, you know, like weirdly enough in a lot of ways. What I've found um, when I spoke to, you know, these high level economists in the, in, in the United States, at least, is that there was a fundamental misunderstanding or confusion around money and where it comes from, um, or they're able to hold totally contradictory ideas in their head at the same time. And so it just te- is a testament to the strength of these stories or the power of these stories and then the neoliberal ideology to continue them. But it it is a question of, do these economists understand well and they just don't want us to know and they're doing a really good job at pulling the wool over our eyes. And number one, I think we should be angry and we should feel like you do be, you know, pretty frustrated. I think that we've been hearing this our entire lives, you know, it's been hammered into us. Oh, the national debt is a terrible burden on our grandchildren, our children, and how are we gonna pay it back? Somehow that's the burden that we're leaving to our grandchildren, not total ecological collapse. But then when you, you know, when I talk to these economists, I think a lot of it did come down to a misunderstanding and a confusion because it's not in the textbooks. It's not in the mainstream economics textbooks. They don't address money, the nature of money, where it comes from, how it evolved. There's maybe one paragraph that's ever in a textbook that describes money. And it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, there used to be barter. There used to be a private market. That's the natural, you know, most powerful force and then they invented money and then later bad bad governments came along to take all that money away from the good people and um, you know use it for its own purposes like starting wars let's say but i think you know the, the bigger part of the story really revert you know the kind of meta thesis of the film is reversing that story kind of the order of the story the agency, you know, of of government in this story and if government or politics, you know, some kind of political force comes first then that really changes everything in terms of how we think our economy should be managed today. You know, should the private market be the, the central coordinator of all of our um, resources? You know, how we decide to produce and distribute resources in order for people to simply survive and hopefully thrive. There's a lot of different ways we could choose to do that. And currently, you know, we've chosen this this free market ideology and we're told, you know, Government should privatize everything, right? That's kind of the neoliberal dogmas. We need to privatize all our social services, privatize transportation and, and ports and infrastructure and private, you know, privatize schools and healthcare, you know, all of these things, right? And, and somehow that will end up being better for everyone. That's a strong story that's told, and I think it has to be combated on the narrative or story level. Um, and so I hope, you know, the film maybe does a, a small piece in doing that. Um, and using the money story as kind of that formative story that really neoliberalism is built upon. It's, it's foundational. So if, if we shift the foundations and we say there, there are alternatives, we're given neoliberalism as the only alternative, as the only way of doing things, 
Um, and yet, you know, this helps us open up and, and see there are many other alternatives that we could organize things differently to live within planetary boundaries um, and still have well-being, still have human you know, well-being and increasing quality of life and happiness um, and health. So that is maybe hopefully a better goal than infinite economic growth. And this leads very well into the next question, although I want to just make the comment that, you know, reading Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, blew my mind when I saw it. But even if your mind has been blown by reading the book, your mind can still be blown by watching the movie as well. Like that, the idea that the film posits that you can't have markets without the government first Mm. uh, was like an oh yeah moment, (laughs) you know. It's so much of just turning everything upside down from the prevailing uh, message. And also if we look at it, logically like MMT has been around with us since World War Two. the fiscal COVID responses in Australia and dare I suggest even decades of agricultural subsidies and bailing out banks and billionaires and socialism for the billionaires so mm-hmm. but it's so warped that it's like a neoliberalism for the rest of us but yeah not sure if you had any thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah no definitely I think yeah you definitely got the main <laughs> theses of the film so thank you but um but yeah i think i definitely watched it (laughs) (laughs) yeah but watching it is one thing and then really absorbing it really getting it is another so um so thank you but yes that's exactly exactly right you know what how we think of the market as as totally independent and you know really the formative structure of the economy when, when you just stop and think wait you know markets are actually so new um they're not you know how humans organize themselves in the past you know we had many many different ways of organizing our, our economies right a thousand as many different ways as you can imagine and based on tradition um none of those you know even though there were thousands and maybe millions of ways to organize your economy we haven't been able to find one example of a barter you know economy where there was a you know natural human system where they said, okay, I'll give you this if you give me that. I'm, I just hunted this deer and I'll only share it with you, you know, if you give me something else. It's like, that's just never been how we've, as humans, have organized ourselves, you know, in this kind of market ideology, let alone the fact that you can't really have a market without the enforcement of private property, the enforcement of contracts, the enforcement of laws, the enforcement of, you know, preventing theft. So all of that is kind of the basic structure that's needed before you, and then, and money itself, you know, you actually need money first. Um, and only later after that, can you then have a market? So it really just kind of flips that story upside down and hopefully flips a lot of, a lot of other big ideas upside down, like you said. Now, Postgrowth Australia podcast, we do what we say, we're on the tin. <laughs> we explore postgrowth, degrowth and steady state economics, um, any alternatives to the growth-based paradigm. Mm. Isn't it fantastic? Well, not fantastic, it's pretty dire that governments sell us the contradictory reality of growth is going to bring us prosperity while simultaneously complaining that they can no longer afford anything. It's like, mm. I mean, you know, growth is going to make mm. us rich, but we're becoming poorer. Right. But only if we grow a bit more. So, you, you know, I, I, I guess <laughs> yeah. the question from that is, can MMT make funding, you know, the Green New Deal is, was highlighted in the film possible, um, but also could it help 
with a rapid degrowth transition, for example, you know, it is actually possible for us to stop logging and employ people to reforest for the backing of government-funded schemes without the government going broke. Exactly. So how do you think post-growth ideas and MMT can go hand in hand? No, I think they're, they need each other, you know, to survive, maybe, I would put it. Um, and, and at least in my mind, I think they go perfectly together in, within my ideology and worldview. But yes, all of what you said is, is exactly correct. You know, I was just out hiking yesterday in Tasmania to try and get away from the computer and visit this beautiful old growth. The tallest eucalypts in the entire world, you know, are here in Tasmania and they're in this totally unprotected small logging plot where everything around them has been clear-cut already and they're on the chopping block they are not protected um, and there's activists here fighting very hard to get these protected but you know it comes down to jobs I, you know I mean there's probably only a thousand jobs left in Tasmania that, that are in the logging industry uh, number one number two they're selling this this lumber these this these giant old-growth trees at a loss. I mean, they're cutting them and they're chipping them. They're chipping them for wood chips and they're selling them abroad, right? Exporting them. Basically at a loss with the government subsidies. So the only argument then at that point is it's creating jobs. Well, guess what? You could create jobs in the public interest doing something socially, ecologically beneficial by directly creating the jobs. And it would actually probably cost 10 times less than indirectly creating the job through the private sector that also is siphoning off tons of profit along the way. Um, so when we start to, to reorder things, we start to realize, you know, what's important and what's possible. So yes, um, you know, I think not only can MMT fund the Green New Deal, but it's pretty much essential, I think, to have a successful uh, degrowing or, you know, post-growth economy where we can have GDP growth go down and not have what's known as a recession, you know, we, and we always run up against this this obstacle, right? I think, you know, I, I don't know if people have read the, there was a recent paper, How to Pay for Saving the World. Um, Jason Hickel, Colleen uh, Schneider, a, a few co-authors were posited very clearly that ecological economics, you know, has some of the folks in it have maybe been been missing this this money piece, you know, maybe it's, it's kind of the missing piece in the whole framework that in order to have, a, you know, a GDP that's not growing, you know, the first obstacle is, well, what do you do? How are you going to pay for all these social services that you're talking about? We're talking about expanding, right, this basic social safety net. We're talking about a job guarantee, guaranteed health care, housing, you know, the essentials, education, those being in the public sector. How do you pay for that? Um, number two, how do you pay for that if your tax revenues are decreasing because GDP is decreasing? How do you pay for that if, you know, you have to pay back the debt, the national debt, and GDP is not increasing? So, you know, those are big obstacles that I don't know if post-growth, degrowth had addressed yet or fully solved. Um, and I think now understanding that money is not exactly what we think it is. I think of it as more of a social organizing tool. It's not a scarce resource itself that we have to, you know, go out and find in nature. There's a lot of scarce resources, and those are the things that we should be paying attention to. You know, what are the real resources we have? What are the real resources we have left? How many do we want to leave for future generations? Those are all political decisions that we need to make. You know, what are the planetary boundaries? And what, you know, we just have to eventually decide where those boundaries are, where we feel like we are comfortable with them being and comfortable with staying, deciding to live within them. Um, and so I think 
you know, money, it just helps us show like we can actually have GDP decreasing and still have human well-being increasing, right? And, and we only know that really through ecological economics where we understand uneconomic growth and we understand that if we measure things differently, we can easily see that GDP growth since the 70s has been actually making us poorer rather than richer. Not to mention it's all gone to, you know, the 1%, basically. Based on the graphs, you know, all of the benefits have, if there have been any, have gone to the 1%, but we've, the rest of us have absorbed the downside, you know, the pollution, the, the cancers, the, the ill health. And we're fundamentally poor because we have less resources. We have less resource capacity now. Um, degraded soils, degrade, you know, degraded air, degraded, you know, forests. You know, with rising seas, we'll have literally just less land to work with or grow food on. So those things are what affect, you know, your potential as a society. But then again, you know, money is this organizing tool that can ensure that we, that anyone who wants to work um, can always have a job contributing in the public sector, doing something, care work, caring for people or caring for the planet. We can always find a way to employ people by hiring them directly through the public sector, which then in itself, you know, ensures that that actually just helps the private market um, in a lot of ways. Everyone has basic uh, income that they spend. Um, we're not running into these recession depression scenarios where the problem in a depression is that you have unemployment and then it's kind of this downward spiral of unemployment and businesses doing bad and losing profit and having to lay off more people. Um, someone has to come in and spend at that point and that someone is the government, the currency issuer. There's really no other option at that point. All that being said, ecological economics and, and MMT, I think, go perfectly hand in hand. And I think in my perspective, you know, really need each other to be complete. But I think as you said, you know, why, has, why hasn't growth, you know, made us richer? But part of that is what scares me a little bit, I guess, about MMT is that they show you how growth should be actually quite easy. You know, I don't know why it's taken kind of the neoliberals or the neoclassicals so long to, to figure out economic growth. I mean, they, they just keep hemming and hawing. How, how can we get the economy to grow? How can we get the economy to grow? In my perspective, you know, almost the easiest part, you know, you, you just have to spend enough, make sure everyone's fully employed. And then you can go out and, you know, employ all these real resources, too. And you have more economic growth um, through spending. So honestly, if we don't, if you have MMT without ecological economics, without an understanding of planetary boundaries, then there's a big risk that we go out there and we just very, you know, even more quickly can destroy the planet to create economic growth. So it is very important that I think we have ecological limits and planetary boundaries in mind because we just have to realize that it is a choice that, you know, we can either choose to go out and, and destroy the planet and, you know, turn it into, into digital numbers on a, on a balance sheet, or, you know, we have to choose to live differently and use money as an organizing tool that still provides, ensures that everyone, you know, it, it's just how we organize who gets what resources, how resources are produced and distributed, having that in a successful post-growth economy. When reading and researching on MMT, I sometimes feel myself a little bit split because sometimes mm -hmm. I feel I'm reading something that sounds pro economy but because i'm a degrowther mm. um i'm not allowed to feel good about the economy mm -hmm. <laughs> but what you've said really kind of brings 
the the two together and so even degrowth as post-growth as steady status can really be behind MMT and you don't necessarily have to be an advocate for a growth-based mainstream economy mm. um, either. Now the, the next question, we've got a, a mutual contact with Steve Williams um, mm-hmm. who, who brought us together. A big song out to Steve who I interviewed in a previous season on PGAP and we talked about MMT and ecological e- economics. Now, as you're probably aware, that um, Steve and I both don't like population growth very much, (laughs) and we're both vocal advocates for the idea that a growing population is unconducive with a degrowth society. But regardless of one sits in the population debate, do you believe that an understanding of MMT may take the wind off the sails of the idea that you need an ever-growing population to pay the taxes to support our retirees, otherwise the nation will go broke, which is a huge mm. kind of um, justification for the economic arguments for endless population growth. Yeah, no, I mean, I have to say, yes. I mean, I, I completely agree that, you know, one of the things that bothers me the most is hearing that, you know, oh, we need population growth to, yeah, to pay for social security or, you know, to pay for these retirees. And it's like, no, you really, you really don't. That's really not how it works. Um, and so, yeah, of course, the federal government can always pay social security benefits. You don't need new taxpayers in order to do that. And we really need to reframe that. So in terms of social security, you know, I mean, what matters is do you have the real resources available and do you have the labor? You know, you do need a certain amount of young labor at some level to take care of the older folks. Um, so it's just how, you know, how are you going to allocate those those resources? What are your priorities? I think we have plenty of space in the private sector that can be smaller now, you know, like the private sector doesn't need to cover so much. There's a lot of waste in the private sector. There's a lot of, you know, I think you can look at in the film, you know, we look at a few places where there's a lot of waste going on in the finance sector. We have finance in, you know, insurance, real estate. We have our our healthcare system in the U.S. at least is incredibly wasteful. It's incredibly expensive, Um, employs 5 million people just in the private insurance industry, which in itself, you know, its only purpose is to really deny people coverage so that they can kind of siphon more of the profits themselves. Yeah, there's a lot of places we can look to free up those people basically to to help care for the elderly when, you know, when we have this kind of population shift or to care for the planet and to care for the young as well. You know, so it, it will be a matter of, of prioritizing, but I think um, we certainly have the real capacity, the real, you know, we're the, still the very much the wealthiest society that's ever lived, you know, in real terms, um, not just in, in monetary terms. And so it's just a matter of yeah, organizing those. So I think um, I hate the argument that you need a population growth in order to feed economic growth. It's like it's the it's the other way around. I mean, who's serving who? You know, what is the economy for? Is the economy for it you know, just to grow in itself? Like that is just the fundamental purpose of the existence of the economy is to grow. Or is the purpose of an economy to serve society, you know, to serve human well-being, to, you know, to one definition of, the, of economics or the economy is just how we choose to produce and distribute the resources we need to survive. Um, so it is meant to serve us. It's a tool that we've created to serve us. It's a system we've created. We, it didn't create us and we don't need to create more humans to feed this economic machine like we're somehow, you know, throwing humans into this economic machine to get it to grow you know that's 
that's the image I have in my head when, when I hear those kind of stories. Um, so I really want to flip that around. Yeah. Um, and so, so yes, I think, um, yeah, 100%, that's, that's the wrong way to, to think about Social Security and taxpayers. It's, you know, will, will lead us to probably have less resources available for the aging population than if we had actually less people on the planet. And I've got a part B of this question, and this is more um, in lines of whether there need to be qualifiers for um, people on, you know, my side of the population debate. I work with Sustainable Population Australia, and we recently launched a report suggesting that the cost of infrastructure um, in Australia can never keep pace with our current population growth rate, which is, you know, 1.5 to 2% per annum. And I wonder if MMT takes the wind off the sails perhaps that you know mass catch-up infrastructure projects are necessarily unaffordable even if they cost you know billions of dollars to retrofit per square kilometer is the infrastructure short for a matter of um, if you try build it too quickly it overheats the economy or whether we just don't have enough resources left in the <laughs> um, yeah. ground to, to mine to build for our exponentially growing complexity <laughs> yeah we need to be looking at at real resources and so it's not you know it's a matter of timing and speed and scale but it's also a matter of yeah just real resource capacity on a lot of levels like i just really believe that we are on a finite planet and there's no way we can have exponential growth forever i mean so you you all know about what exponential growth is i think the mainstream still imagines two to three percent growth as a nice slow sloping linear line not an exponential thing that goes off the charts in one day um, so I think, yeah, there's no way that we can, even with MMT and with the Green New Deal, that we can continue to produce enough green energy um, on a finite planet for infinite exponential growth. So, no, I think um, no matter what, you have to live within planetary boundaries. And MMT still have to, again, decide politically on what those boundaries are, and then MMT kind of helps you organize within that those boundaries um but mmt doesn't set the boundaries you know what i mean um we have to do that ourselves and we have to decide to do that um no one else can force us to fantastic um second last question for you and that is um (laughs) your own personal the um Maren Poitras vision for a post-growth world or at least a world in which white house economic advisors actually have an understanding of how money works. Um, What might a day in the life look like in this future when compared to our current experience? Mm, That's a really good question. And I think something that we should all spend more time doing, you know, envisioning the future that we want to live in. Because I think think the biggest thing that neoliberalism, neoliberal ideology does is, is constrain our imaginations and say, don't even let yourself imagine beyond what we currently have because it's not possible don't even you know imagine that you can have you know free healthcare and free education and this kind of security a home basically the basics don't even imagine that and then what you would do with that kind of leisure time and f- real freedom you know they focus on freedom a lot but i think real freedom is when you have we can socially provide so many of those essentials and then have more freedom more time i think you know, when I envision, I think we should all be envisioning that. I think, you know, the next films or, the, you know, we, we need to be producing more films, um, more 
works of fiction that help us imagine that future. Because if we have, you know, more of a shared vision of where we want to get to, then we can figure out how to get there. Um, and we do need to have that roadmap. Right now, I think we're just lost in, right, like our, our goal is infinite economic growth, but we don't know where that's leading or why. Um, so if we start with a goal and we start with a vision, then we can figure out how to get there. Um, so, you know, me personally, yeah, I would just envision more time, more leisure, the basics, and then time to spend with, with people in community, you know, and have conversations, enjoy our social nature. Um, and then, of course, enjoy nature where there's lots of wild space, lots of wild, you know, other species that are thriving, um, oceans that are thriving. And so, you know, that's really the vision I would want to see and being able to actually maybe have a kid or raise a kid, you know, in a society like that today. Mm. It's hard for, for me to imagine that, but maybe that would be my vision where you would feel good about bringing another human into the world, um, which, yeah, I can't say I'm quite there. Likewise. <laughs> yeah, that would be partly my, my vision, but a little more of a, a not it doesn't have to be a simple life, but, you know, I think just it's almost like as much freedom as we can possibly have within to do whatever we want. We don't need to be too constrained, but constrained by the planetary boundaries. I don't have to tell people how they should live, but um, I think we have a certain outer set of boundaries and then do whatever you want within those, within those boundaries. And I think it's really good to end conversations like this on a visionary note because the challenges are also tangible and real. But, uh, yeah, no, we need to have a vision of, of uh, what alternative we're aiming for and your vision is a very good one. So uh, last, last question is to bring Australians all together, at least those living on the East Coast and South Australia and Tasmania, um, to see Finding the Money and your tour um, so we'll put links on the uh, show notes but yeah how can people find how to see it and what can they expect yeah no great questions and yes you can go the best way to find out is kind of go to our website which is findingmoneyfilm.com um, and there we have links to all the upcoming screenings but specifically the australia tour will take you to the modern money lab site and so we have all the in-person screenings are happening. We have two special sneak preview screenings. I don't know when this will come out, but we do have a sneak preview screening here in Tasmania in a small village, Franklin, um, on February 27th. And then we have a special Melbourne screening with the Sustainable Living Festival on the 28th. And then Steph, and then Steph, that'll be just Q and A's with me. And then Stephanie will, will arrive and the rest of the screenings will be with Stephanie Kelton, chief economist of Bernie Sanders and kind of the main character in the film. And so she'll be touring. Yes. So we'll have Q and A's after, uh, moderated by some special guests as well. So some local Australian economists and activists, as well as, you know, sometimes Stephen Hale and others. Um, so you get to hear a variety of perspectives and hopefully translated into, you know, the current Australian maybe political landscape and, and what's possible here. Um, so there'll be folks, you know, experts uh, helping to translate that to the Australian context. Um, so yes, it's I think it's really important. You know, I, I have to say that I do think it's a really fun film to watch with an audience. Um, sometimes there's reactions. I think it's better than at home on a laptop. But um, so please, you know, come out, see it with an audience, and then you can ask questions and discuss, which I think is really important because the film is maybe just a basic foundation still for uh, many more questions hopefully that it will bring up and that and that you'll want to discuss so I think um, yes please come out and see it it's a very special opportunity with Stephanie here and 
do get tickets because we're we've sold out of one already just today. So please do hurry and um, oh, and really? buy tickets. Well yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so thank you, Australia. <laughs> oh, we try. Um, and for those who are unable to come, um, the movie will become publicly available for laptops uh, on May. Is that right? Uh, in the U.S., so I don't. Well, I'm not sure if, when it'll get to oh. Australia, actually. Um, so I got to figure out the international distribution. Um, as soon as we can get it up here, or ask your local. You know, I we need to talk to the distributors here. So if Madman or SBS are listening, um, we'll be trying to get in touch with you to distribute <laughs> here. Yes, yes. Well, well, that's that's another challenge for a later date. Uh, we'll let you. <laughs> We'll let you get through the tour first because uh, we're generous <laughs> like that. But, um, yeah, Maren, thank you so much for your time. You're a great uh, filmmaker and you're a great guest as well. So fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to, to talk and share. And thank you so much for the work that you do. You are listening to Postgrowth Australia podcast, where your co-hosts Michael Bayless and Mark Allen, and we just spoke with American director Maren Poitras, director of the new documentary Finding the Money. Now, Mark, I made it very clear during the interview what a fanboy I was of uh, Maren's work, but what did you think of Finding the Money? It was a fantastic movie and a fantastic interview and I'm so, so happy that the modern monetary theory message is finally getting out there and via the big screen as well because I was often promoting the deficit myth book but to see it on the big screen and to see it going around the east coast of Australia, it's really heartening. And, you know, the interview was great, just loved it. And one thing which I think is is really important that was said in the interview that, that you pointed out is that you know, we need to understand modern monetary theory and explain in the context of degrowth and transitioning to a post-growth economy without the entire world caving in, as our neoliberal masters would like us to think. And that's really important because, as you point out, um, modern monetary theory could equally be used to turbocharge growth. But we are, of course, restricted massively by resources and a rapidly warming planet. So there's only a certain amount you can turbocharge growth from here on because all the limits to growth are starting to show themselves. Yeah, I agree that um, sometimes reading about MMT in a vacuum on its own, you're like getting right behind it, but it's like, hold on, I'm in, am I encouraging like economic growth here, you know? So it's really good to have these conversations about um, where the two realms Yes. MMT and degrowth intersect because they can and you you can embrace both. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And, And it goes back to what I was saying before. You know, MMT is a lens and the more we understand how the economic system works, the more we can show the world how it can be used for good to transition to something that works within limits to growth as opposed to the the general ignorance about economics that the neoliberals like us to have so that they can manipulate us into thinking that we have to have austerity in order to have shiny things. Exactly. (laughs) 
And, you know, all this and more as Finding the Money tours the east coast of Australia, um, I'm going to put a calendar list of screenings in the show notes and links in which you can get your tickets. I really highly recommend that you do make it if you can. I know that it will be starting in Tasmania, in a few towns and cities around Tasmania, before moving to Melbourne as part of the Sustainable Living Festival. And I believe we'll be going to Sydney and Adelaide as well. And I think for most of the dates, Stephanie Kelton, the author of The Deficit Myth, Uh, will be at most of those screenings. So you'll be able to see her in real time and maybe even ask her some questions as well. Yeah, it's one of those times where I wish we were living on the East Coast, Michael. (laughs) Isolation does have its downsides, as does the West Coast. But until then, uh, what did you think of this episode of PGAP and what do you think of MMT? And do you have any ideas for future episodes and guests? Feel free to contact us anytime, links in the show notes, and share this and other episodes with your friends, family, and networks. It's word of mouth that gets this podcast around, and word of mouth seems to be working at the moment because we've had a fantastic couple of months run of listens to our episodes back in January our interview with uh, Noongar Manang cultural educator Larry Blight was the best performing episode in the last couple of years. Uh, but our next interview with Timothée Perique had higher numbers still. So we've had just a brilliant run of the last couple of months. And I can only speculate that as our economic systems collapse, that's really great for <laughs> demand for podcasts such as PGAP. Every cloud has its silver lining, Michael. (laughs) Indeed. As the biosphere slowly collapses, we will get more listens. (laughs) So, you know, (laughs) swings and roundabouts. But to be serious, it is really, really heartening to hear that. You know, we we make these podcasts. I mean, Michael does um, most of the interviewing, but I come here and I do the intros and the outros and we sit down and stare at the kitchen wall talking into a microphone and you wonder whether or not there's anyone out there listening and then you look at the stats and you think oh yeah there are people listening so it's kind of nice (laughs) it's nice because the microphone looks a bit neutral (laughs) it it does (laughs) you know you don't get much feedback from it no apart from you know white noise occasionally oh yes 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 the wrong kind of feedback um but really looking forward to some amazing special guests in future episodes of pgap no spoilers but until then until then